Welcome back to Arc of Hope podcast. We're meeting here Thursday night instead of on a Friday night because we've got a recital to go to tomorrow. Our kids are going to be singing and they're going to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. We hope. But um, we are continuing our study of the biblical feast days. And we started off in the fall because we were discussing the end times. Now we're coming around and talking about the springtime festivals, the former rain festivals, and these have their fulfillment in Christ's first coming. And so today we're going to talk about Passover, which we just had. We had a Seder um, on Good Friday, and it was what, it was great, uh, other than the fact that my son threw up all over the place. <laughs> so uh, so it, it, will, it will be remembered uh, for that. But we, we pushed through, we soldiered on, and it actually, I think, went pretty well, right? I mean, yeah. I stumbled yeah. over some stuff. I've never led a Sadie you, before. You tried the gefilte fish. And we, I tried the gefilte fish, and I'm telling you what, it was not the worst thing You're I've had. You're taking it home with you. And I will take it home because I've got to... I've got to basically take in my wallet a bunch of fives and pay people to try it because I want to I want to see their face, right? I'll do it. Like I'll seriously take some money and have people no, try it. This is our money, buddy. You can take the box. Oh, okay. If you're giving money, I'm going shopping, and you can keep the gefilte fish. Okay. All right. Take dollar bills, dollar bills, buddy. Dollar bills. She told me, you know, I could, I could, I could pull some biblical rank, but I'm not going to. Right? Submit yourselves to one another. Husbands love your wives. So, anyways, love you too, sweetheart. So we're talking about the Passover festival, but before you get to the Passover, they would have a whole month where the mother of the home would do a thorough cleansing of the house. Uh, all throughout the month of Adar, and this is the month preceding the month of Nisan. That's when the Passover takes place, and this was cleaning out all the leaven. Okay, uh, make sure there's no leaven anywhere, and then there be a final ceremony, which is called the Bedhochametz. I'm trying my best to pronounce that correctly. If you are a Messianic Jew or a Hebrew speaker, just be generous, okay? Jesus is all about grace. And but we're from we're in Georgia. And we're from North Georgia, okay? Mm-hmm. Hebrew okay. is not my first language. Redneck is. So yeah. <laughs> uh Beto Chametz is the search for the leaven. So basically what would happen is um the thirteenth of Nissan, they would go throughout the house. And they would search for the leaven. This was actually conducted by the head of the house, the father. Uh, The mother, though she had been cleaning out all the leaven, she purposely left certain pieces of the leaven in in the home. So that way the father would be able to find them ceremonially. He knows where they are, okay, but it's a ceremony. And so he's going to go through and he's going to find all these different bits of leaven and he's going to gather them together. Now, there's a lot of symbolism about unleavened bread in Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians 5, this is what Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so since Christ is our Passover, he delivers us from judgment. We are to free ourselves from the leaven, which represents sin. So he takes away our sin. He makes us right with God. And so we should not continue in that sin. So the removing of the leaven from the household represents the removal of sin. But there's an interesting way that they would do this, and maybe this would be something fun we could do 
next year. Uh, but the father of the home would take a candle, a wooden spoon, a feather, and a linen cloth. And these were all used to sweep up the pieces of leaven. After they're collected, they were wrapped in this linen cloth with the spoon and the feather. So Ken Johnson argues, and I don't know if he gets this from somebody else or if he just made this connection himself. I think it's reasonable, but ultimately we don't know for sure. He argues, though, that the symbolism is that leaven represents sin. We know that much. The wooden spoon, he believes, represents the cross. The feather represents the Holy Spirit, who who is the breath, the 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 ruach, the wind spirit. That's the the, the Hebrew word, down. the dove that came down. So he thinks that the feather represents the Holy Spirit, and the linen cloth represents the burial shroud of Christ. Mm-hmm. So all of that does make sense, and it gives us a very compelling picture of how um, Christ is the means by which our sin is taken away, just as the the pieces are collected. Um, in the spoon and the feather represents the Holy spirit. The Holy spirit is the agent, the means by which our sin is removed when we're born again. And of course the wrapping everything up in the linen cloth represents the death of Christ. And when we're buried with Christ in Holy spirit baptism, our sin is removed from us. So it is a really powerful picture of salvation. Another thing that's interesting is when Jesus went up in John two, we talked about this. Um, on Tuesday, I think we talked when about the, when he got out the whip and overturned. Yeah, the we talked about this. So in John chapter two, Jesus goes up for the Passover and it was during that time when the Passover was at hand, when it was about to start that Jesus goes into the temple and he cleans house. I mean, he tips over all the temple, uh, the tables and he takes the whip of cords and he drives out the people who were changing the money. And was this the second time he had done this? This is the first time. So okay. the second time happens during the passion week. So this happens at the beginning of his ministry and the the next time happens at the end of the ministry, which I never knew like growing up that they were two events. I just assumed that they were the same, but based on the order of the text, it's definitely two different events. Did he have a whip the second time? He doesn't mention a whip the second time. It's only the first time. Maybe he did. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But anyways, this seems to be reminiscent of the Bedhot Chametz. This is the removing of the leaven. So there's sin amongst amongst the people, and that's obviously exemplified in the money changing. You know, mm-hmm. making God's temple a place where they would, you know, profit. profit and, you know, exchange merchandise. And it just was taking away from the holy nature of the temple. It was supposed to be a place of prayer and contemplation on God and his truth. And so Jesus is going through and he is removing the leaven. Okay, he's the head of the house, and he's removing the leaven. Okay, it's his father's house, but Jesus is the image of the father. And just the father would remove the leaven. Jesus, Mm. acting on behalf of the father, he removes the leaven. And so that's really powerful. But it goes right along with the fact that this was Passover season in John 2 when Jesus did that. Now, talking about the Passover, our listeners probably already know that the Passover is the first festival that they were to keep. They were brought out of slavery in the nation of Egypt. The first commandment, even before they received the law later at Mount Sinai, they were told to keep the Passover. And so the Passover represents Christ, our Passover lamb. Uh, John chapter one, uh, John the Baptist said to Jesus, or said about Jesus, gesturing to him, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the basics of the Passover, most students of the Bible already know. But since we did do the Seder, 
not too long ago. We want to talk about that. And Ken Johnson, he explains most of the stuff that we went through. There are a couple things that he doesn't talk about. But essentially, uh, the, the main stuff he does refer to. So let's talk about the timing of the Passover, and then we'll look at the Seder meal and what that's all about. So the Passover is starting on the calendar month Nisan, day 14. That was preparation day. That's when they would actually kill the lamb and they would eat the lamb after sundown, which would actually be Nisan 15. So I have a so, question. Yes. Question. We have a calendar in here. We do. Yes. Um, does it always fall on a Thursday? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, it doesn't correspond to our calendar. It doesn't always fall on Thursday. Um, right. This is this is him. Uh, I think what he's trying to show is that it was Thursday when Jesus, um, gotcha. when he came into Jerusalem and the Passover happened that week. Okay, so Thursday would have been the day that he was on the cross. And that was preparation day. And we know that because John tells us that in his gospel. So we know that... Sorry, it was preparation day? Preparation day. But before, for um, Passover. For the Seder. So that was the preparation day for the Seder. Didn't they already have the Seder the the last That's what we're going to talk about. And that is a very interesting topic. Hold on to that. Save it up, Scott, because that's good. Um, anyways, Nissan 14 is when they would kill the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was actually slaughtered in the temple at three o'clock. And that's when Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross. And so the connection there is obvious. And that's a really amazing connection that I didn't know. And it just shows that these festivals, they typify Jesus's comings, the first coming and the second coming. But, um, the 13th, the day before preparation day, the day before the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, uh, there was a custom among Jews, especially in Galilee. Mm -hmm. And they had something called the fast of the firstborn all through the, the day that the Passover lamb was killed. Okay. So preparation day, they wouldn't eat anything until sundown, which would be the next day. That'd be Nisan 15. And then they'd break their fast then with the Seder. So that means since they're going a whole day without any food, Nissan 13, whenever, well, technically it would be Nissan 14 because the sun goes down. But when Passover begins, okay, sundown, the day before they kill the, the Passover lamb, that's when the firstborn would have a meal, a special meal. I assume that everybody would have a meal at that time of the day. I mean, that's when you'd have dinner. But it was especially uh, significant for the firstborn because the firstborn in Israel, they are going to go that next day without eating. Okay, they're going to fast because it's a reminder of how God spared the firstborn when the blood was applied. And uh, the rest of the people, of course, who didn't apply the blood of the lamb, uh, their household was struck with that plague, the 10th plague of Egypt. And so Jesus, when he has that supper with his disciples, that is literally a last supper. And that would have been a very familiar way of referring to this because it is the last supper before their fast would be broken the next evening with the Seder. So it will be a full day fast. And so Jesus celebrated that normally when the Galileans would. There is, of course, the possibility that this is sort of a both-end situation, that it could have been them having their last meal before the, the, the fast of the next day. Right. But it also, of course, could be 
a Seder, seeing as Jesus isn't going to be celebrating the Seder with them the next day. So that there's a possibility that it's a both and situation. Some people are adamant that this is not a Seder because it's too early. They have a point there. Okay. It is early. The question is, did Jesus do it early for a reason, which is obvious. That whole dipping, or was would it have just been dipping in oil if he wasn't dipping it? I'm thinking it's yeah, the, the stuff dipping in the yeah, and that see that's the thing. It could be as simple as they're dipping in a bowl, okay? Sure. So they're just eating their meal. But and, we, sorry, and we were watching the the one for Israel podcast, and they were talking about this as if the Last Supper was a seder. Meal. Yeah, and a, and a lot of people do make that argument. Uh, but again, I've heard just as many people argue the opposite. So I, I'm not an expert on it. Sure. I just know that it is the wrong day. So the question is, did they do it early? And that's perfectly sure. possible. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely possible they did. I mean, Jesus knows this isn't going to be a normal meal um, because it is right. his last meal with the disciples. He and he's not going, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples for three years. I mean, every time yes. they had the Passover. So this last one, he knows that, the Seder meal that they normally would have, he's not going to have it with him mm-hmm. because his body is going to be put in the grave and he's going to be dead then. Yeah. And instead of having the Seder, they're going to be mourning the loss of their, their Lord. Mm-hmm. But, um, it could simply be that this is the special meal before the fast of the firstborn. And I think that takes on significance here because, uh, the Bible says that the church is the firstborn. It's the assembly of the firstborn. So mm-hmm. in the old Testament, when you have, the firstborn being spared, a lot of people like myself, maybe, and if you're listening, maybe you, you feel the same way, but I've always wondered why was it just the firstborn? Because we know that this is a type of salvation. Mm-hmm. So the firstborn obviously is exclusively referring to, you know, a specific member of the family. So why wasn't it everybody in the household? Well, the firstborn was dedicated to God. Yes, because of this event. But I've always wondered if there's a connection between this And what's referred to in Colossians chapter one in Colossians one, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation because he, because he comes first. And a lot of people that, you know, are members of cults. Um, and if you're a member of a cult, we're not, uh, we're, we're, we're Orthodox. We're evangelical. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay. So if you're a Jehovah's witness or a Mormon, you obviously won't agree with me on this. But in in Colossians chapter one, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That doesn't mean that he was the first to be created. It doesn't say that he's the first created of creation. It says he's the firstborn of creation. And in Jewish thought, and I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. Again, it's a Hebrew phrase, but they would refer to God as the, the Bekoro Shalom, the firstborn of the world, the firstborn of the age. So they referred to God as the firstborn because in their mindset, firstborn has chief status is above everybody else. Mm. And obviously also God is firstborn in in the sense of time because he comes first. Mm -hmm. Okay. Though he's eternal, he does come first. And after all firstborn, they come first. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the firstborn in terms of creation and he's the firstborn in terms of redemption. So he has an exalted status as the only begotten son of God over all the other children of God. And of course he's resurrected first and he gets his glorified body. And we derive uh, the promise of our glorified body from his, from his resurrection. So when it says that thinking of like the priesthood and the responsibility of like the head of the household being the spiritual leader as well, like the firstborn. Yeah. The firstborn definitely would fill that role, but 
And again, that goes along with the fact that Christians were the firstborn, the firstborn before the law. They were priests and the Bible basically suggests, um, the Levites replaced the firstborn. So it's like, there's something changing in Israelite history to where you have priests who are the firstborn. And then Moses comes down with the law. They're worshiping the golden calf. Mm -hmm. Uh, the the Levites are on their side or on Moses' side. And they end up slaughtering a number of their brethren because they put God first. Mm -hmm. And then they clearly receive a reward. And that reward is the Levites would be the priestly tribe. So the priests would exclusively come from Levi, but not only would the priests be of the tribe, but all the members of the tribe would have some role in the tabernacle. It could be playing instruments, okay, a choir. It could be guarding the tabernacle, the Bible seems to indicate that Levites were, were warriors in a sense that, um, you know, they would make sure that no one defiled it. Mm. And so the Levites would bear their swords. Mm. Um, so the Levites had their duties. They would also take the tabernacle down and they would erect it again whenever they came to the spot that the Lord had them stop and stay there while they were wandering in the wilderness. So the Levites had that role, but here's the thing. They don't seem to be priests in the exact same sense as the firstborn war beforehand. It looks like things have kind of taken a step down from where they were before. Before uh, the firstborn, they seemed to be priests in the fullest sense of the term. You know, they they came between their families and they, between God. Um, but the Levites, they don't all have that privilege. They weren't able to go into the holy place and eat of the showbread there. They were not they were not actually priests, the Levites, but they were servants in the tabernacle. So I think that under the law, um, it was God's intention for the priesthood to be limited. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that makes sense. It's the law. The law withholds inheritance rights. Paul talks about that in Galatians 4, that the law is like a schoolmaster. And, you know, the child is the heir, but they're under the authority of the schoolmaster until Mm -hmm. they reach that age. And then that's when they can receive their inheritance. So um, it seems like the priesthood was limited, but that was only because they were under the law. Now that we're not under the law, all Christians are priests. So I would say Levites, though, even though they weren't priests exactly like the firstborn, the firstborn did lose a privilege. What would have happened if they wouldn't have sinned? Well, I assume the firstborn would have been like the Levites. They would have had a role in ministering in the tabernacle. Would they have been priests in the same sense that Aaron and his sons were? I don't think so. I think that they would have just been servants in the tabernacle. And that was sort of a foretaste or a token of the fact that, hey, you're the firstborn. Priesthood is what you know, you, you have a right to, however, you're under the law and under the law, you don't have your full inheritance. And that's because of sin. That's what the law is all about is to demonstrate our sin. Whenever Christ comes and he fulfills the law for us and he frees us from it, we come into our inheritance and our inheritance is that of a priest. But, um, anyways, talking about the, the fast of the firstborn, um, the church is the firstborn. So whenever they were having that, that meal, in preparation for that fast, I'm sure there were people there that were not firstborn. I mean, we know for a fact that there were some who weren't firstborn, but they were all firstborn. James and John. Yeah, exactly. They both couldn't be firstborn. Same thing with Andrew and Peter, right? Mm -hmm. So even though they may not have been literally the firstborn, this was a firstborn meal because they were going to be redeemed by, Mm -hmm. you know, the flesh and blood of Jesus. And the church would be formed on the basis of that. 
and uh, they would be firstborn just like all believers would be. So it gives a different meaning to this fast of the firstborn. This firstborn is not going to be just a physical thing. It's going to be something that spiritually applies to all who are connected to Christ through faith and are part of his body. Um, and so that's why there's equality in the church. And that was a radical concept. Um, I think that what shocked people so much was not that the Gentiles were saved. That was already prophesied. Like if you had your old Testament, right, you know, the Gentiles are going to be accepted. They're going to be brought in, but it was the fact that the Gentiles, they don't seem to be on the same level. When you look at millennial prophecy, for example, Jerusalem's clearly the capital of the world and the Messiah is Jewish and the Jews are they're in a position of prominence over everybody else. So there was this difference. So you got the Gentiles down here. They're accepted, right? But not on the same level as the Jews. So that's what was shocking was in the New Testament. When Paul talks about the church, he's like, listen, in the church, there is literally no difference between Jew and Gentile. A Jew has no more access to God than a Gentile. They have no more advantage than the Gentile because the church is not about Jew or Gentile. So this is a dispensational thing. Whenever the kingdom age comes, there will be a difference between Jew and Gentile at that point. Mm-hmm. There will be. Now, of course, the church, you know, we've experienced the rapture at that point. Um, we're going to be reigning over the nations. Okay. So there'll be members of the church reigning in their glorified bodies. Mm-hmm. There'll be people who in their past life were Jewish and past life Gentile, but that won't matter at that point. They're saints reigning with Christ. But those who are in their natural bodies, there will be Gentiles and there will be Jews. Past life sounds like reincarnation. It does sound like that. You know, that's not what I mean. Let's say earthly lives. Okay. Earthly lives is better. Past life is in before they were glorified before the rapture. We could say, uh, you know, you got BC, AD, it's a BR before the rapture and AR after the rapture. (laughs) Um, was that makes you wonder if that, you know, if we're going to do that. Maybe we will. I don't know. Uh, We'll definitely remember our life, right? It's not a past life. Before the return. Before the return. After the return. That works too. But anyways, that's the the meaning of the uh, Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. It was that last meal before they had their fast. Um, But let's talk a little bit more about the Passover. So, um, okay, so they apply the blood in a special pattern. So the father would kill the lamb, collect the blood in a basin. He would take some hyssop, this plant, he'd dip it in the bowl and he would place the blood above on the lintel, uh, lintel and to the left and to the right of the doorpost there. And, um, there'd be blood of course, that would drip down to the threshold from that top spot where the blood was applied. And, uh, in- interestingly enough, that does make a basic shape. The cross is the shape that it makes. They would also, take the lamb and they would cook the lamb. When they cooked the lamb, they would prop it up with a cross piece. So it was actually roasted upright with its arms stretched out. Oh. And what makes that even more interesting, if that's not obvious enough. Is that real? Is what real? That's really how they roasted it? According to Ken Johnson, that is how they roasted it. So I'm just, I'm going by. Fact check. Yeah, I think we need to fact check. And, okay, and, and, uh, in addition to that, it says, according to Ken Johnson, that they would take its intestines and they would place it around its head and they called it the crowned sacrifice. Now, that sounds awfully specific to be made up. So, interesting. 
So he argues that this is a picture of the lamb on a cross with a crown on its head. Anyways, if you're if you're listening to this, we, we got some fact checkers in the audience and they're they're trying to keep me straight. <laughs> but you know what? That's good. We need to have iron sharpening iron, discernment. That's what we're all about here. But um, let's see. He talks about a temple ritual where they sacrifice the lamb at 3 p.m. We talked about that. Um, we didn't talk about how they chose the lamb four days before Nisan 10. That'd be Palm Sunday. So when Jesus comes in on Sunday, that is Nisan 10. That's the same day they would have brought in the lamb from Bethany. The high priest would have specifically selected it and chosen it because it was without blemish. And uh, they would, for four days, they would examine it, right? I mean, they're going to make sure that there's no blemishes. They're going to make friends with it. Uh, I suppose there would be some attachment. Okay. If I was the high priest, I probably wouldn't make friends with it. it would make it a lot easier. <laughs> Your kids are going to make friends with it, I suppose. But um, anyways, they would examine it, make sure that there were no flaws in it. And then on Thursday, that's when they would sacrifice it. Um, let's see. Um, he also mentioned something here um, about, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for, for next week. I don't want to jump ahead too far. Um, let's see. Well, my fact checkers are searching. So far, I'm not really finding anything. Okay. He, I know he quotes from the Jewish Encyclopedia a whole lot. Okay. And that's something that's free online. What, what is so, the, the crown? Is, what do he he calls it, the, it's the crown sacrifice is what he says they were, they were called whenever they took the lambs and they roasted them upright and they put the intestines around the head, which sounds really gross. Um, JewishEncyclopedia.com. I don't think it's a dot .com. I think it was just a, a book that's found on many Bible websites. No, I think what she's there's it's a, a website. It, could be on um, it says. Okay, let's see. Um, we will, we will stop there. I mean, I don't really want to go any further. Uh, next week we can talk about unleavened bread. Whenever they actually had the seder meal, and the. Seder meal kicked off the festival of unleavened bread and it lasted for seven days. And so I, I sorry. And I, I, Oh, just a second. You find something? Uh, no, well, what we will do is we will research that and we will come back we talk about unleavened bread and we will let you know what we find. It says that they, they took them down, they took them home and roasted them on a spit of pomegranate wood. No bones might be broken either during the cooking or during the eating. The yes. lamb was set on yeah. the table at the evening banquet, the Seder, and was eaten by the assembled company after all had satisfied their appetites with the what other stuff I can't see. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't really give us what we're looking for. had to be consumed entirely that same evening. Nothing was being allowed to remain overnight. Um, and for those who are listening, um, Christy mentioned the bones. Um, the bones weren't broken, and that was fulfilled in Christ on the cross. His bones weren't broken. They would normally break the shins or the knees of those who were on crosses to speed up their death so they would suffocate. They couldn't push up and take a breath, so they would sag down and they would eventually die. That was done with the thieves on Jesus' left and right, so their legs were broken by a big mallet that the Romans called a crucifragum. 
And so they would have died soon after that. Jesus, on the other hand, had been sagging down for quite some time. And so most people would have assumed, okay, he's either holding his breath for a really long time or he's dead. So to make double sure, they pierced him in the side rather than break his legs. And incidentally, this is exactly what scripture tells us is going to happen. As the Passover lamb had no bones, it's broken. Jesus, as the lamb of God who takes away our sins, had no bones broken either. So nothing that happened at the foot of the cross was left to chance. And uh, the people didn't recognize that. They didn't see that, um, even the disciples, until after the fact. But okay. uh, the dividing of the garments, the gambling, the all of that was a fulfillment. Out of his yeah, side what's... is a sign of the suffocation, though, of the crucifixion. Yes. Right. The, uh, whenever he was pierced blood in the water. side, blood and water came out. And, heart, and that represents the fact that he had experienced heart failure. Mm-hmm. There's this sack around your heart, and it fills up with fluid um, whenever you experience heart failure. Um, if I'm understanding this correctly, I think the sac's called the pericardium. And so whenever he was pierced in the side up into the heart, um, the fluid that came out was evidence that this is what had happened. So this is clear medical proof that Jesus didn't swoon or faint on the cross, that he definitely died on the cross. So that conspiracy theory that he was taken down alive and he got back up out of the grave three days later, that's not allowed by the medical facts that the text relays to us. Okay, fact checker. Fact checker. Jewish Quarterly Review, April 1996. Actually, it was January through April 1996. It says, Justin Martyr depicted the, how do you say it? Peshkal, how, how do we say it? No, that the was Pesach. Um, Passover. Yeah, lamb as being offered in the form of a cross. And he claimed that the manner in which it was slaughtered prefigured the crucifixion of Jesus. It's generally thought that Justin, who was born and raised in Samaria, was thinking of the Samaritan Passover, but the present-day Samaritan practice would not justify his depiction of the lamb in the form of a cross. An examination of the rabbinic evidence, on the other hand, seems to show that in Jerusalem, the Jewish lamb was offered in a manner which resembled a crucifixion. Hmm. The earlier Samaritan practice, it is suggested, followed the Jerusalem tradition, but has since been changed. Hmm. Rabbinic evidence could also provide an explanation for the crown of thorns with which Jesus was adorned. Hmm established um and this was established this the jewish quarterly review was established in 1889 and is the oldest english language journal in the fields of jewish studies awesome it is edited at the center for advanced judaic studies at the university of pennsylvania and it aims to publish the finest work in all areas of jewish studies so just just in case you don't know who justin martyr is if you're listening justin martyr was a second century christian apologist apologist is someone who makes a case for for something in this case he was making a case for christianity um his two about his two apologies or defenses of the christian faith are available for you to read but he also had a dialogue with a guy named trifo or trifo it's pronounced one of those ways, but Trifo was a Jew and Justin Martyr has a dialogue with him about Messianic prophecy. And so it seems that Justin Martyr being from Samaria, he understood these practices. And so what has happened and what, I wonder if this is the case with the practice changing, a lot of things changed after the fact because Christians would point these things out. Uh, Justin Martyr pointed out things about the angel of the Lord. He talked about how, according to Jewish thought, there was a, a two powers in heaven, the father and the son that, that teaching the two powers in heaven was condemned by the rabbis. And if you study the Talmud, Talmudic literature, 
it mentions that this happened um, sometime after the second century. So in the second century, so following the death of John, Christians still have a sense of their Jewishness. Mm. And, and whenever they're having these dialogues with, with Jewish unbelievers, they're pointing this stuff out. They're going to Daniel 9 and saying, hey, Jesus came exactly when the 70 weeks prophecy said he would. Right. And they're pointing out practices like the upright position of the lamb when it was cooked. All of this is showing that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But what happened is the rabbis noted these connections. They obviously didn't believe it. They were hardened in their hearts, but they didn't want their, their the members of their synagogues sure. to go and become Christian. Right. So what did they do? In some cases, they started changing the readings in their synagogues. When they were reading through the Torah, they wouldn't read Daniel 9. They wouldn't read Isaiah 53. 53. Exactly. They, they would say that whoever studies into Daniel 9, let that person be accursed. You know, they would try to dissuade people as much as they could from these texts because they were so obvious. And so I can't help but wonder if the reason the practice has changed is because Christians were pointing out this practice right. and they were celebrating the Passover. This was another thing. They celebrated the Passover, early Christians did, at least in the Eastern Roman Empire, until the the three early 300s. So it was around the, the Council of Nicaea whenever Constantine okay, right. made this decree that they weren't going to celebrate Easter on the Passover anymore. But a good, good guy. Yeah, because yeah, that's the whole... The church putting themselves under the bondage of the state, which was bad news. Uh, There's no head of the church but Christ. But anyways, um, that shows how there was this growing antagonism towards the Jews around the 300s. But in Justin Martyr's day, 200 years prior to that, they're still having these conversations. Okay, They still have this common ground. In fact, early on, the Romans wouldn't be able to distinguish between a Jew and a Christian. Right. They didn't. They thought that Christianity was merely a branch yes, yeah, of, Judaism. of Judaism, and that's why there's a there's a history about Claudius. It, it's uh, by a guy named Suetonius, and Suetonius mentions that Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. This is mentioned in Acts. Uh, this is when Aquila and Priscilla fled, right. mm-hmm. and, and they they eventually you know they became friends with Paul. But um, Claudius kicked the Jews out, all of them, and you wonder. Why in the world would he do something like that? Well, Suetonius mentions it's because the Jews were arguing with each other over a guy named Crestus. Now, Crestus is not the same as Christus, but you got to understand people didn't know who who Jesus was. Okay. And Crestus was a common name. So you can understand why there would be a confusion. But Claudius is thinking, oh, they're arguing over some guy named Crestus. Well, if they're going to argue over it and cause unrest in my city, I'm going to kick them out. And so... It's it's funny that at that time, the Jews who were arguing against Christians would have been like, no, it's not us. It's their fault. You know, right. kick them out. But from the perspective of the Roman emperor, it's like, you're same. all a problem. And so he kicked all the Jews out. Mm-hmm. But later on, that, that line of different or distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, it became very plain and obvious. Um, but so our fact checkers have established that according to ancient Samaritan, and ancient Jerusalem tradition, they did sacrifice or sacrifice the lamb and then cook it upright in the manner which would resemble crucifixion. And apparently they did also, it doesn't mention the intestines around the head, but it does mention the crown. It It did reference the crown of thorns. So it Mm -hmm. appears that Ken Johnson did his research 
Congrats, Ken Johnson. Uh, maybe you need to put your sources in your book, though, because that would really save us some time. Yeah. But uh, so we're, we're going to stop there, y'all. I know that tonight it may seem like if you're listening that we're just rambling. But listen, we're, we're real people here. OK, we're not going to. You know, we're not going to dress it up. We're believers that want to understand God's word better. And uh, if you're benefiting from this, God bless you. We hope that you get something out of it. And hopefully you'll listen to us again. Have a good night.